we asked for your questions about objectivist philosophy and you submitted them. Answering your submitted questions on philosophy is something that we would like to make a more regular feature of this podcast, and today is our second installment of this series. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Iron Institute. My name is Agustina vergara and I'm a research associate at ARI. Uh, with me, Aaron Cargate, senior fellow at ARI, and Aaron Smith, fellow and instructor at ARI. Welcome, Aaron and Ankar. Hi. Thanks. So today I'm going to be asking you some of the questions we selected uh, from the ones we have received, uh, and plus a few special interest ones that we've gotten from our Objectives Academic Center students this year to give the audience a flavor of what we discuss in the OEC. And we try to pick a mix of questions uh, on topics regard ranging from ethics and politics to epistemology. Um, so why don't we get started with epistemology? So we have a question here about what is the value of being certain? And Robertus gives uh, several examples of cases in which he was certain about something, but then he turned out to be wrong. And he asks, if certainty does not necessarily imply being correct, what is the value of being certain? I mean, I think there are a couple of ways to answer the question. I looked at some of the examples that Robertus gave, and I don't think they're in the same category. Uh, one was a case where he um, plays basketball a lot, and he, and he shoots a free throw, and it feels exactly perfect. And you know, because he's done it many times, this is going in, and it doesn't go in the hoop. Maybe there's a, a stray wind or something pushes it a bit or whatever. Um, now, that kind of thing, I don't think one should assess as certain uh, anyway. It's not like the evidence is conclusive that it will go in. I mean, that's more of a feeling from experience versus a, a, a cognitive evaluation of the status of a belief uh, in your mind. Um, I mean, you could, uh, two things that, I mean, that come to mind for me is one is it's important to be able to assess the status of a given claim or a given idea or a given proposition in the context of the, your, the rest of your knowledge and the evidence that you have for it. So what's the value of it? I mean, that's one kind of question. But the other kind of question is, should you evaluate the, the cognitive status or the epistemological status of a claim? And I think you need to. And if it's the evidence is conclusive for something within a given context, then you would regard it as this is certain versus what, why is it important to do that? It's important because you need to know the difference between something that you can classify as certain given the evidence uh, for it versus something that's merely probable or possible. Uh, like there's some evidence for it, but not a lot. Um, and there's a psychological value too, I think, to, to, to have in your own mind that these things I think are certain and these are maybe less so. I think the, that last aspect is important that and it's really the essential of the issue that you put it to know that it's conclusive. The, so objectivism's perspective on certainty is, is it's important to be certain and it's important to know that you're certain and it's possible to be certain. That, so to take it, certainty does not mean just, I'm emotionally persuaded of this, nobody can tell me I'm wrong, 
and uh, I won't listen. And so it's not an, at all a feeling in that sense. It's the logical status of your ideas. And a different way to put it is, what's the value of knowing that something is proven? So objectivism's view is to be certain, you have to have a conception of what it takes to prove this conclusion, this idea, this claim, this theory, and then to know, yeah, I've actually gone through all the steps necessary to prove this. And when you do that, what you know then is, I can now regard this as knowledge. I can regard it as, I now know this. And that has a very different status from, yeah, I have some reason to think this, but I don't know if this is right. And so the kinds of examples Robertus gave, like the, uh, Aaron, you brought up the, the uh, throwing of a basketball, are not the context in which you need the issue of certainty. That is the concept or the idea of certainty. You need it when you know that to establish a certain idea, claim, theory takes a long process of gathering evidence, of thinking about it, of integrating it, of checking it against like counter evidence and things. Uh, if it's you're trying to assess a theory, like the theory of evolution, it's like what are ideas and views that say this theory is wrong and what is the evidence for them and what, what's brought up. And it, it's a long process of assessing all that. And at the end of it, it is you say, okay, I've now proven this and it's knowledge. And that makes a big difference both in your thinking and in your action. To view something as I now know this has all kinds of implications for your action about what you're willing to do and why, but it has just for your thinking. There's a big difference if you're a student and studying communism. And it's like, people say this is great, but it doesn't seem to lead to very good things when it's tried here and it's tried there. And you get mounting evidence that yeah, this probably is not good. And there's a big difference when you get to the stage of saying, yeah, I now know communism is destructive of human life as a political system. I therefore regard it as evil. And when you encounter new forms of communism, new communist regimes that you really have reason to think, yeah, they're implementing the communist ideology. You have a certain view of them and a certain um, that you think of it as yeah, I know this is not going to work. I know this is evil. And so, Because you know that communism as a theory, when put into practice, is evil. And you've proven that to yourself. So it's, it's the value of being certain is incredible. And it's part of the reason that objectivism stresses that what you're trying to establish is when you can say that your ideas, theories, claims are proven. And then yeah, so I think just the other front, it's possible. Part of the reason objectivism stresses this is it's a common kind of view that what knowledge is, is exploding one theory after another. So we thought we knew this, it turns out we didn't. We thought we knew this, it turns out we didn't. And objectivism's view is, no, you go from building knowledge upon knowledge upon knowledge. So you know some things and you learn more things and you learn more things. Not that you keep finding out that you're wrong. So there's a kind of implicit view in the question of, yeah, you can be certain, but a lot of the times you're going to be wrong. That's not, there is such a thing as you were certain and it turns out you were wrong. It's a rare occurrence, not the norm. And the question sort of portraying it as, yeah, what's the value of it? Because you could be wrong. And it all the time turns out, yeah, you thought you were certain you're wrong. 
And when it turns, when you think that you know, when you're certain about something, and not just emotionally, you've established its credentials. In effect, uh, it's not that you're all wrong. It's usually that a lot of what you think is true is actually true, and that some aspect of it needs to be reintegrated in a different way. But it's not that you're totally wrong. Um, and I think part of the, the frustration of the questioner is that if the expectation is that once you've evaluated something as certain, it's unassailable. It, it's, it's the kind of thing that can never be shown in any way to be false. And it, it's, it, you can rely on it forever, no matter what. And then you can't. It's like it turns, out that, oh, it turns out that this needs to be revised in some sense. And then there's a kind of frustration where they just throw up their hands. It's like, what's the point of certainty? It's, you know, if new evidence can overturn it or cause you to recontextualize it or whatever. Um, but that's a false expectation, the expectation of omniscience or, or, or whichever. Thanks for that. And I think our, our next question is, uh, is related to, to this one. And the question is about why should arbitrary hypotheses be rejected? And the questioner asks, why should arbitrary uh, hypothesis be rejected? Is the answer that asserting a hypothesis without evidence is simply to assert a falsehood? And since our goal as thinkers uh, is cognition and evidence is the only thing that moves us towards it, then asserting the hypothesis without evidence does not move us towards cognition and so it should be rejected? I think aspects of that proposed answer are true, but I don't think it's all right. Um, I mean, an arbitrary claim is one that's asserted without evidence. So it's a claim that is disconnected from the reasoning processes that would lead one to think it's the, the proposition is true or not true, rational or irrational. And it's disconnected from any presentation of evidence. In other words, facts that would tend to lead toward uh, or lead one to think that or give one's reason to think that the proposition is true or possible or probable or whichever. So an arbitrary assertion is one disconnected from that kind of uh, evidence and cognitive context. And in that sense, there's no way to integrate that with other things that we know well. The claim is disconnected from that context. So if you're trying to evaluate the claim, there's really nothing to evaluate. Because if you tried to ask, is this true? Your first question wouldn't be to look at that proposition in a vacuum. It's, well, what evidence is being put forward for it? Like what grounds or what reasons do we have to think that this is true? And if none is asserted, there's nothing to evaluate. You can't evaluate a claim that's just like a disconnected proposition in a void. There's nothing to interrelate it to, because that's what you do when you try to establish or validate or evaluate something. You, you relate it to the context of other things that you know, um, and that you can't do that. And there's a certain sense in which you, why should they be rejected? I mean, why should they be accepted? I mean, there's no reason to accept them, but why should they be rejected? And I think there's a good reason, uh, is that it's bad practice, I think, for your own thinking methodology to treat a claim asserted without evidence as the kind of thing that needs to be evaluated as on a par with a claim that is presented with evidence to treat it as if it has some sort of cognitive standing and then you're just going to go evaluate it. It's a real rabbit hole of, I mean, there's no way out of it because it's because what you would do to challenge the claim is you would look at the evidence and challenge the evidence. 
Uh, and if there's none being asserted, there's nothing to challenge. And then you just, you wind up playing a game um, that's disconnected from any, I think, useful cognitive effort. So one way to put that is <clears throat> there's something wrong in the way the question is asked. It's why should arbitrary hypotheses be rejected? But the objectivist view is arbitrary claims or arbitrary assertions about anything. If you claim, so arbitrary means without evidence. I don't, and without argument. That is, I don't have any reason for thinking this, but, and the but can be, well, but isn't this possible? Isn't this a hypothesis? Or, but I'm certain of this. I don't have any reason to give you of why I'm certain, but I'm certain. So it's an arbitrary claim about anything. And it could be a hypothesis, but that's a detail that it's about, I have a hypothesis or I can say, well, this is probably true or I'm positive this is true. And if you ask, well, how do you know it? Oh, I don't, I didn't do anything to know it. So part of what it means to say that it's arbitrary is the person is in effect. So sometimes just implicitly, but often explicitly saying, I didn't do anything to put me in a position to know, but consider what I have to say. And objectivism's view is that consciousness starts off as a blank slate. You, you don't have any innate knowledge, innate ideas, innate arguments. You have to work to get all that. You have to look out at the world and figure out what's going on. And that's what evidence and arguments are about, of, of saying, this is what I've done to put me in a position to know this. And the person who brings up the arbitrary says, no, I didn't do anything, but you should consider it. And as Aaron was stressing, there's nothing to consider because what it would mean to consider it cognitively is, okay, so what's your evidence? And what are the arguments for this? And, oh yeah, I think you're right about this. This is, uh, it's possible that this happened or it's probable or it's certain. Yeah, you've given a proof of this, but if the person gives nothing, what can you do? There's nothing to assess. And so part of the question is, it was, is a hypothesis with, asserted without evidence false? Objectivism's view is much more radical than that. It's doesn't, you can't assess it as true or false. It's not a cognitive assertion that you can say it corresponds to reality or it conflicts with reality. It's a zero cognitively, precisely because the person's saying implicitly or explicitly, I've done zero to put me in a position to know anything. And a zero is a zero. So objectivism's view is it's worse than false. False means the person attempted to understand reality. Here's my evidence or here's my argument. And you point out to him, yeah, no, this is a bad argument. And it's as a result, the person thinks, and if in doing that, what you come to say is, look, no, what you're asserting actually contradicts things we know. It's false. That's very different than saying, no, you haven't even given an assertion that we can assess. And so objective view is it's worse than false. And it's important that it be regarded as worse than true or worse than false. Ankar, let me raise a, a question here, because I think that there's, there's a sense in which an arbitrary claim, so in objectivism, it's put, it's put that an arbitrary claim is one that's asserted without evidence. There's a sense in which I think that you can assert it with some kind of evidence and argument and it still be arbitrary because it's not the evidence and the argument that 
is driving your acceptance of the belief. In other words, so I, I had a student in university who came to me in office hours. He was talking about arguments for the existence of God. And he gave me three or four of them. And I, I showed him what I th took to be wrong with all, all four of those arguments. And then he started thinking about a fifth one. And I stopped him and asked, if you give me all of your arguments and I show you what's wrong with all of them, would you drop the belief? And he said, no, I don't think I would. So, and I said, then what we're doing here is really something of a pretense. It's not that, so you've armored yourself with these things around your belief, but it doesn't stand or fall with those arguments. And I said, I, I think you're accepting it. It sounds like you're accepting it more on emotional grounds and you just want it to be true. And, but now that, now that it doesn't stand or fall, it's not the scaffolding that supports the view. It's just nothing, you know, it's just the pretense. Yeah. And I think that can be considered arbitrary too in the way it's held. Yeah, I think that kind of thing's a mixed case. It becomes arbitrary, like fully arbitrary when you point it out and he realizes it. Yeah, I'm holding this idea and the arguments don't really matter to me. Um, it's not the re then it's, yeah, okay. So the reason I'm holding this is just for emotional grounds. It's sort of a mixed case in that he may have thought, yeah, these arguments seem pretty good and they're some of the reason I accept this idea. And you're in effect pushing. Is it really some of the reason you affect, uh, or accept this idea? And at least the person sounded honest enough to say, yeah, no, not really. This yeah. isn't at least even part of the reason. So, and then, then it goes yeah. fully to arbitrary. Okay. I think there was a, that's a good concrete example, Aaron, of what we be talking about. Um, but now moving on to ethics, uh, we have two related questions about the contextual nature of knowledge and principles, and it's also connected with what we were just uh, talking about. So Daniel asks, can you elaborate on how knowledge and principles are contextual? Specifically, how does this not fall into pragmatism? I think the, the questioner says that he thinks he knows the answer, but he would like to hear from you guys. Um, I, I mean, start. maybe it's useful. Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, at least to start off to what is meant by pragmatism here? What, what does it mean to not fall into pragmatism? And I think as it's being used here, what is meant is that pragmatism in some sense is saying you don't need principles. And in effect, even stronger, that principles don't really work. Life's too complicated for principles, for things that are black and white, absolute to work. And objectivism's view is, no, you need principles precisely because the world is complex. It's through principles that you come to understand and therefore be able to deal the complex world that exists out there. So the view is not um, that the uh, Newton's laws, for instance, or an oversimplification of reality and the true engineer would kind of put those aside, maybe use them once in a while when he's designing an aircraft, but not all the time. I mean, you, come on, you can't be a zealot. You can't say it's absolute that gravity is there. And objectivism's view is, 
No, it's precisely the reverse. It's precisely because we got science and a science of physics and principles about the way motion and gravity and so on work that then you can master such a thing as flight and really understand it and design aircrafts and know what they're going to do and so on. So it's not a denial of the complexity of reality. It's rather a whole perspective on how you actually deal with the complexity of reality. And for that very reason, then the kind of the second part of the question is, uh, then what does it mean to say principles are contextual? But the first thing to stress is what uh, objectivism denies the opposition that pragmatism makes between sort of dealing with practical reality and being principled. That it's, if you're principled, you're not really able to deal with practical reality. And if you deal with practical reality, you have to toss out principles. And there's a question is, if, uh, are your principles true? I mean, if your principle is true, you don't discard them ever. I mean, there it's a form of grasping a fundamental fact about reality. You don't use them sometimes, so they don't get in the way. They're knowledge. They're knowledge about reality. And you can have things that masquerade as principles, but they're not really principles, like some kind of out-of-context or concrete-bound kind of rule. Uh, and I think this goes to the sort of moral aspect of the question is don't lie. That's not a principle. Uh, that is not a generalization. It don't lie is a concrete rule. Why would that be a rule? Like, what are the facts? I mean, how would you apply that? It's, well, you don't need to think. It's just, you know, if, if their situation arises and it's, you have the choice of lying or not lying, it's, well, don't lie. That's it. And you don't have to take into context. Well, what are the surrounding facts? What's going on? So if you asked a question, this relates to the issue of knowledge being contextual and principles being contextual. Um, Smith lied to Jones. Was Smith wrong to do that? No context, no facts surrounding it. Just was he, was he wrong to do it? Like, there's no way to answer that. Um, is he trying to uh, defraud somebody by falsifying something and you know, trying to gain a value through deception? Is that what's going on? Is it the case that one of these kind of the murderers at the door asking, hey, is your wife at home? Is that the context? I mean, you need all that kind of context and the surrounding facts to know um, what you thought of that situation. So if the principle is something more rational, more abstract, like be honest, in other words, make sure you're thinking, uh, make sure you're not deceiving yourself about the, re of, about the facts. Keep your mind in touch with the facts rather than trying to adopt some sort of fantasy uh, of the situation. It's no, you're taking the full reality of the situation in context, being that the person has no right to that kind of knowledge. The person is there to exert force on you, which he has no right to do. You have no obligation to uh, tell the truth to this kind of person. In other words, you're taking the whole context of the situation in, um, you're bringing that to bear in effect to decide what it means to be honest in that situation. And I think there's no breach of honesty, for example, in that situation to not to say, yeah, no, she's not home. <laughs> Um, but if you just, if all you had was don't lie, you know, you don't, you, you, it, there's a way in which you have to ignore or set aside or not take into account a whole range of facts that are relevant to deal with. So it's the ideal isn't an unthinking absolutist sort of, if you want to put it that way, don't like that, but, uh, uh, application, it's not even application. Uh, adherence to some rule and that's the ideal but then if you contextualize it it seems a little wishy-washy or I'm sliding into some see if it works 
uh, sort of looseness. And I don't think that's what it is. I think taking the context and the relevant surrounding facts into account doesn't make your principles or your being principled more slippery. That's how you apply. That's how you keep it connected to reality. If that makes sense. <laughs> and take a, another example. We can take it again in philosophy, but objectivism's view is not just that moral principles are contextual or that philosophical principles, but the principles as such. So I brought up Newton's laws of motion, their principles. And objectivism's view of knowledge is that it's an integrated total. So going back to the issue of certainty, the principle rests on and its meaning and therefore application come from the evidence and arguments that lead you to the principle in the first place. So that what Newton is studying is the solar system and motion that he observes uh, on the earth. He's integrating them. Uh, I mean, the, the famous, the, or, or the way it's put, uh, I mean, the motion of the moon and the motion of the apple, apple and he sees there's a similarity. Indeed, there's the same forces at work. So there's a vast context that leads to those things. And when scientists, for instance, discover the subatomic world, and they find there's a whole world um, of very, very, very tiny things that Newton didn't even know about. So it's, you have to think like, do these principles now in this new context, how do they apply? Or there's new things to be discovered, new principles to form. So, and that's not, oh, knowledge is being overturned. It's rather respecting the fact that knowledge is contextual or one that comes up in philosophy <laughs> all the time that individual rights from objectivism's perspective, they're not things existing in reality that you somehow latch onto. They're principles we form, and they're principles we form for a specific reason, for how to organize socially, and really socially when it's, we're talking at a scope where you have a government and where you have a whole bunch of people interacting in a certain kind of way, they don't know each other personally, they may have never met and so on, but there's a sense in which they're in the same political system and so on. What principles and laws should govern that, that kind of an organization to make it a pro-life uh, and a pro the individual's pursuit of happiness organization? And the principles are formed in, for that reason in that context. And when people then ask, well, you're on a lifeboat, um, and it's a week in and food is running out. Can you violate the other person's rights? So that's not the context in which the principles formed. It's not the context in which the principles are meant to govern. It's not to say that none of the considerations that lead you to the principle of individual rights are not relevant to think about in a lifeboat situation, but it's a different context. And for that reason, you have to think about it. You can see for, if people wanna see this in some detail, Ayn Rand in The Virtue of Selfishness has an essay, The Ethics of Emergencies. And here, part of the point of that essay and the argument in it is moral principles are formed in a certain context. When you start then thinking about emergency situations, and she has a whole description of what that means, the context is very different. And you have to appreciate that fact when thinking about what is the right thing to do and what would be wrong thing to do. And so it's not a flaw in principles that they're contextual. It's their very nature. And it's what makes you, uh, uh, one way to put it is principles are what enable you to retain a vast context and deal with it. But then you have to know like, what is the context in which they're formed and therefore to which they're applicable? 
And what are contexts in which that's not true? And you have to think anew, or at least think um, about some new factors because the context is different. So that's how objectivism looks at it. Um, so there's not any tension at all between principles and context. They're one and the same thing viewed from different perspectives. I personally uh, find that explanation very useful because for a long time I struggled with um, finding kind of like a balance, at least hypothetically, between not dropping the context, as Ryan put it, but not dropping, let's say, the principle entirely either based on a particular situation. So that and, that explanation to me yeah. is, is helpful in that respect as well. Yeah, because I, I get the impression that um, the questioner is somewhat concerned that if what I'm doing is I'm applying moral principles in a context, that there's there's a concern or a worry that what I might be doing is rationalizing something that, <clears throat> well, it's okay to lie in this context because, uh, you know, and, and you kind of in effect come up with a rationalization where it, where it, what it, what you're telling yourself in effect is I'm bringing in the relevant context to, to show that this is the right application of honesty in this case. And it might not be in the sense that one can, you can deceive yourself in that way and just be really rationalizing something you want to get away with. Um, I mean, that you have to just be more, just to be more honest and introspective with yourself. Is that really what you're doing? Or is it, no, you are, that is exactly how you would apply the principle of honesty in this situation. Because then you might worry for yourself. Uh, Am I just sliding into, let's see what works for me in the now. So we have a related question um, that Joe asks. And the question is, as an objectivist, how do I defend a principal stance against criticisms of absolutism or moral relativism? What are the differences between these three positions? I'm not exactly sure if I understand what Joe's asking. <clears throat> if the so defend against criticisms of absolutism or moral relativism, it sounds like uh, he might think of objectivism as being criticized for being uh, I've never heard it criticized for being a morally relativist position, but I've certainly heard it criticized for absolutism. In other words, there are black and whites, there are moral truths that they're not relevant, that are not uh, only true for you or true for me or true for this culture or true for that culture, but they're actually true. They're true about the nature of reality, you know, in relation to man and his life and so on. Um, I think you need to get... I mean, if that's what the concern is, you, objectivism is being criticized for being absolutist. Um, I think it, it helps to get clear about what it, what it means for objectivism to be absolutist in that sense. In other words, committed to um, the idea that there are principles that are true and that there are black and whites. Um, and you have to know more about what that means and what it doesn't mean. Um, because when people conjure up, so some people are actually opposed to the whole notion that there are, are black and whites, so to speak, there are, this is true and this is false. And that's one type of person. Uh, but the other type of person that just, when you say that, yeah, there is such a thing as black and white, there is such a thing as true and false in morality. They bristle because they, they associate that with this sort of rigid dogmatism. You know, it's that that you adhere rigid compliance and adherence to these sort of rules out of context um, 
and they should bristle against that. I mean, it just becomes an issue of dogmatism and duty rather than understanding, no, these principles are actually true and they help me live my life and achieve my goals. Um, so I think more needs to be, I think you have a clearer sense of what it means to be absolutist in the objectivist sense. And I think it'll help you figure out, because you can embrace that term, um, but you have to be sensitive to what that means in a lot of people's minds. I, um, I think uh, I agree with you, Aaron, at least my experience meshes with yours in the sense that the criticism of objectivism or myself as an objectivist is more often that you're an absolutist and that, and like, that's a <clears throat> negative. Um, but the moral relativism does come up and it comes up, for instance, in the kind of example you brought up about thinking of princi moral principles as contextual and the issue of what objectivism means by honesty. And that is a principle that you should not seek to gain values by faking reality versus the way it will often be cashed out as it's not a principle that don't lie. But from the kind of more religious uh, person coming from a religious moral orientation, they experience that and will often voice it as, oh, so you're saying li lying, you can sometimes do it and you can sometimes not. So that's moral relativism. And as though what, so part of it to distinguish between these is it is relative to the facts of reality. That's what you're trying to understand and figure out how to navigate. So if the facts of reality are different, so and the situation of between being a businessman defrauding your customers and someone banging on the door at 2 a.m. and asking, well, yeah, is your wife home? And saying, lying to one person and not the other. The, it's relative to the actual facts and therefore for the causality involved. Moral relativism as a real negative, like, and objectivism would view it as a negative, is if it's relative to how I feel. So I don't feel like telling the truth today, so I'm not going to tell the truth today. And I feel like uh, exploiting someone, so that's what I'm going to do today. If it's relative to your feelings about what is actually good and bad, that is destructive of your life and of other people's life for causal reasons. So it's relativism in that sense, that is objectivism says, no, morality is not relative to your feelings, but it is contextual, which means relative to the actual facts. And if the facts are different, how you navigate and should navigate the world is different. And then on the side of the absolutes, again, if you, uh, 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 this was Joe asking this, if he wants to read more or reread, read Ayn Rand's essay, because it's particularly about moral principles, the cult of moral grayness, that she says, you have to look at the world in terms of black and white. That does not mean that every person, situation, and event you are trying to evaluate falls into the category of it's all black or it's all white. There is such a thing as gray. But the only way to understand gray is to, as a mixture of black and white. Um, and that, so you have to think in absolute terms. It doesn't mean when you apply these principles, someone is always wholly black, wholly white. Though it also doesn't mean everything and everyone's gray. So, and you get that kind of view, I mean, to take the, the caricature, but it's not, I mean, you actually do get this. So yeah, Hitler's bad. 
but you're going to say he's essentially evil or wicked? I mean, look, he had good things about him. He liked classical music and so on. That is not a mixture. That is, this person is, look, if you're being an absolutist, is essentially evil. And none of these things mitigate that. So there is that kind of error of thinking also, well, yeah, you have to think in black and white, but everything in reality is gray. That's not true. And also in relation to the criticism of moral relativism, yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's helpful because another aspect of this is I think people have become accustomed to thinking about <clears throat> moral principles or maybe rules, depending on how they think about it, um, should not be relative to a goal or relative to an end. So if you're, I mean, in objectivism, there are no, uh, you know, categorical imperatives. There aren't any imperatives like you must do such and such, just out of context, out of, not in relation to a particular goal. In objectivism, it's you must do such and such if your goal is to achieve this end. And so it's a kind of, it's a, it's, this is the causal means to achieving this end or this, this value. And so it is also moral, principles are relative to a particular end in a case of objectivism it's life um and oh it's oh so it's relative to if you want life so if there's a, there's a clause there's a conditional clause if you're after this goal then this is the right way to proceed and i think some people just don't like that aspect of it because then it seems to make it conditional in a way but that's what makes it useful um is that it's an identification of a means to an end uh of a or a methodology toward a value as opposed to some, you must do it and that's it. Okay, in the interest of time, let's move on to our next question. And this question comes from Wayne, who quotes Ayn Rand as saying that, and I started quote, there is only one fundamental right, a man's right to his own life, close quote. And the question is, does a man have a right to his own death? Um, so phrased like this, the, the question's a little strange, I think, or it's, it's at least of getting what she's arguing, because I don't know what a right to your own death would mean. I mean, if you die, it's your own death. Um, so, but I think what the question's getting at is get what the right to life means in, for Rand and for objectivism. Rights, she says, are freedoms of action. So the right to life means you have the right, and in a political context, you have the right, that is you don't have to seek anyone's permission. You have the right to take all those actions that are necessary for a rational being to pursue their life or to pursue their happiness. And crucially, as, as the kind of fundamental political rights, you have a right to think, and you have a right to produce and keep the products of, your, of what you've produced and, and sort of make them serve your own life. So you have a right to liberty, you have a right to property, you have a right to the pursuit of happiness, but they're all rights to take certain actions. So it's a right to life doesn't mean um, you have the, a, sort of a guarantee that you're gonna stay alive. If you don't take the actions necessary, then you will go out of existence. Um, but to say you have a right to it means you have the freedom of action, which means no one can interfere and you don't have to seek anyone's approval permission before you act. 
So the implications for that, and they're important implications for the issue of, of death, is you have the right to end your own life. You have the right to take the action that will end it. And it can be a hunger strike. It can be taking medications to end your life. It can be hanging yourself. I mean, it can be all kinds of things that you're doing. Um, but if you have a right to pursue your own life and take those actions, you have a right to, in effect, cease doing that. Um, and it's, it's, though the essence of life is not how to die, it is an important aspect of life to think about on what terms am I willing to live and what terms, therefore, will I let go of my life and even actively end it? And someone with a painful terminal illness who decides, and, and think of the ones where it's a lot of either physical pain or mental, uh, you kind of mentally fade away like Alzheimer's. And someone who decides when they realize they have Alzheimer's, there's no treatment and decides at a certain point, I'm going to end my life before I, in effect, become closer to a vegetable and so on. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live on those terms. They have the right, for sure, the political right. And in many cases, I think it's more for a person to decide I'm living on my own terms and I'm not willing to live on these terms. Yeah, and there's a way in which it's not even a different question. Um, the, you know, do you have the right to your own death or, or do you have the right to suicide? It's not a different really question because it's, it's a person who is alive and their whole context of knowledge is, what do I want my life to be? And what do I not want my life to be? How do I want it to shape up? And how do I want to continue to persist? And in, on what terms? So that is a consideration about how, what my life is and how I want it to shape up and what my choices are about that. So it's all of this is done within life. So it's not really a different question. It's about what the decisions you make while you're alive about the terms on which you want to continue existing. So it's, it's included in that. I mean, there are, there are complexities in, I think, rightly legal complexities when it comes to issues about euthanasia and is a person mentally uh, alert enough to know what he's doing when he asks for, I want to be put to sleep or whatever, uh, or what can the family make a decision if he's unable? And so there are complexities to how that right gets implemented. Uh, but I think that's not the central thing. That's a, that's a, that's a complexity or a, or a detail. And um, did Anran ever spoke about uh, her view on suicide, um, leaving with aside the context of saying, like you mentioned, Ankar, like circumstances that would make life really, really miserable, like Alzheimer's or a terminal disease that is really painful. Um, how how would she? How did she evaluate uh, that morally? Let's say. I, so the other examples that come up, um, so in the fiction, in Atlas Shrugged, it comes up, and it comes up explicitly, and I think deliberately, that this is in Atlas Shrugged, that because the whole perspective of the morality, as Aaron was saying, is about the pursuit of life and the terms on which I think that pursuit takes place, and that therefore this is what I'm seeking from life. It's life as she'll put it uh, in her nonfiction, of man qua man. It's a certain kind of existence that is suitable and proper to man that one's seeking. And in Atlas Shrugged, 
a character, I mean, one of the heroes, I don't want to give away too much, so I'm trying to put it in terms that are generic, but one of the heroes tells someone uh, they love that if I see you on a torture rack, that they're trying to use you to get to me, I will end my life. And it's, I don't want to exist in the, on the kind of condition that my life requires the destruction of everything I value and of my highest values in particular. And that's another context. And that does happen in dictatorships when your family is threatened by the regime. And you, if you don't do this, or if you um, stop, if you keep saying what you're saying, bad things are gonna happen to everything that you love. So this is a real condition. And her view is, it, I mean, it, what comes in at the shrug is, it, there are conditions like that where it is proper to say, I'm gonna end my own life to stop the destruction of everything that I love. But I'll add that those are really extreme conditions. And so some of these questions are, um, so the, there are those type of contexts in which uh, it, it can, and in some case rightly does make sense to do that. But one shouldn't take, this lean tilts more into psychology now uh, or psychotherapy in a way, but one shouldn't be too, I think, quick to think that, I mean, because often when people will uh, decide to commit suicide, it's, I have no values left to pursue in life. I have nothing to expect but pain and uh, suffering and I, that's not worth it. Don't be too quick to think that that's what all is left of life, you know, because when you think about, uh, think about, Life is the only place where values are. It's the only place where values are possible. It's the only place where improvements are possible. You don't go to a place that's better. You simply cease and end all possibility for making anything better. That's all you do. So you cease the pain, but you're not there to experience the relief. So it don't be too quick to think this is the solution. Uh, I think there's many, many ways which you can find better solutions to these things and take a more, even though it's a very difficult process for people in that psychological condition to think that, yes, there's ways to get better and improve. And it's the only place you can do it. There's no other place. Okay, turning the page entirely, uh, there's a question here by Michael about um, Ayn Rand's political views in a way. So the question is, what happened that turned Ms. Rand so strongly against Ronald Reagan? At one point, she supported him. I think basically what happened, to put it very simply, is she found out who he is. Um, <laughs> so her, when she earlier had some support for him, it was on the basis of some speeches. In particular, she heard what well, I'm trying to... Blanking out on what it was, when it was, but it was in uh, in the 60s, I think. And she thought, yeah, this is some, this is a strong speech. Um, but people have speech writers. When you're running for office, you often say things. Unfortunately, I mean, in today's context, people, the candidates often say things written for them. They don't really mean. It's not the essence of what their candidacy really is about. And I think the more she saw what Reagan was about, the more uh, worried and horrified she was. And it's from particular things such as his treatment of Ford in, in the 70s um, and after Nixon's uh, resignation that really turned her off. 
But much more fundamental than that is that uh, one of the ways she put it late in her life is um, she sort of dislikes Reagan for the ideas he hasn't got. So part of it was he's portrayed as in the 70s, there's a swing to the right. And he's portrayed as a kind of um, leader for that. And she thought he's so devoid of ideas and what the country desperately needs is intellectual leadership. And he has nothing to offer intellectually. And he's also been sort of propped up as here's an intellectual person on the right. And she thought, no, this is not. And when it descended into the level of his appeasement of religion and the most primitive aspects of religion with um, the so-called born again evangelicals and the denial of evolution and the bringing in of creationism. And we even want it taught in science class. And to go back to what we earlier talked about, creationism is the injection of the arbitrary into the classroom. We don't have any actual evidence for this, but consider it as another theory on par with the theory of evolution. She viewed that as this is such a destruction of the intellect and a contempt for the intellect. And this is now going to be, um, he's going to be upheld as the representative of capitalism, of freedom, of the right. Her view was, and I think she was right about this when you see what happens to the right and to the Republicans, when you look like 30, 40 years into the present day of what happened to the Republican party, her view was, it's going to be a disaster long range. Um, and that is how, I think that's her final perspective on Reagan and what his impact on the US and the Republicans and the right, the so-called political right will be. And I think she was correct about that. Let me ask you a follow-up. So why do you think Rand's perspective on Reagan is so different from so many conservatives uh, I mean, even libertarians, I mean, in, or even people who are real fans of Ayn Rand, is that they, like, if you go back and you watch some of Reagan's speeches and stuff, I mean, he, he seems gigantic compared to what we're looking at today. And I think some fans of Ayn Rand also kind of scratch their head, is like, why is she so opposed to Reagan? And it's like, you know, you've given some reasons, but why, what do you think is underneath that sort of difference that she's, I mean, she says some really strong things against Reagan. Yeah. Yeah, she, I think she it's, doesn't it's mince least, her words. Yeah, I think it's at least two things. It's um, her, she has a philosophical long-range perspective, and when um, she writes, or it's a talk that then is is transcribed, called "The Age of Mediocrity," and that's revealing as a title. Just that, so she puts, and it features. It doesn't only talk about Reagan and his candidacy and the meaning of his of of his campaign and that he's bringing in the so-called moral majority into politics and so on. So religion in a primitive form, but it focuses a lot on that. And it's put in the category of this is the mediocrity of our age and it's anti-intellectuality. So she's viewing it long-term and she says in that essay, he will likely have some short-term positives. And I think what has happened is most people, that's what they focus on. And they can't see the long range. And certainly they can't see that 
I think Ayn Rand's perspective would have been, yeah, it's a logical progression from Reagan to Bush Sr. to Bush Jr. to Trump. And sort of the, now it's, it, it's an open secret that, what does the Republican Party stand for? Do they stand for free trade? Do they stand for um, uh, lowering government spending and taxes, but, but spending and taxes, a smaller government fiscally, more fiscal responsibility, not running up huge deficits? What do they stand? And it's, no, we don't stand for any of that if we think it's convenient politically to not do this. And then the presence of religion more generally in politics and in the culture. I think she views, he's not the cause, but he's not just a symptom. Like he's part, mostly symptom, partly cause. It helps accelerate that progression. So I think one of it is that she's looking long range and she stresses that in it. Like I'm evaluating Reagan long range and long range, I think he's gonna be a disaster for these reasons. And I think she was correct about that. So that's just unusual and it's easy, particularly in politics. Everybody is focused on the next month or the next week or the next day, the next election. And so it doesn't take a long range perspective. But then part, the second aspect is part of her long range perspective is that religion is a negative influence and negative, like that's putting it mildly. It's a really destructive um, idea, particularly when it gets political expression, but more generally she thinks uh, religion as if its essence is faith, it in effect religion is a license to accept things that are arbitrary. To go back to that issue, that's what a religion in the end is it's allowing people to accept things for no evidence, no arguments, which means arbitrarily. So she views it as destructive. It's certainly destructive when it gains political expression. So, and she saw it rising, not only in America, but to understand the Middle East and the ascent of Iran, that it's religion. And that one of the things she said is these people the kind of the people Reagan's appeasing the moral majority, whether they recognize it or not, their political ideal is Iran. It is the Ayatollah. This is what they want. And so that's part of why it's going to be a long range disaster. And all the people who either think of religion as a positive force, or at least are scared of saying anything negative about religion, like everybody should be able to have their own beliefs and who are you to tell someone and so, that kind of thing, then it is, yeah, no, we can't be criticizing religion. And we saw that after 9-11. I mean, and people attacked us in the name of religion, explicitly telling us they attacked us in the name of religion and how many Americans couldn't believe it, that that was really what was motivated them. And they took certain religious interpretations and doctrines seriously and thought, this was the practical expression of it. People couldn't go there. And I think there's something similar in the assessment of Reagan. They either deny it, that it's a negative, or they can't go there. They can't even consider it. Um, and there's more to yeah, say she, about- as you said, She has a very strong view about this, but it's an articulate view. It's not like, I can't stand Reagan. It's, it's right. a very elaborate view of- yeah, and philosophical. It's based on a. It's based on a conception of, of. 
it's based on a conception of the the nature of religion, I think, in, and in the nature of government and stuff. So it's coming from a, a perspective that people don't, many people don't agree with. So it's some people think, you know, religion and the religious conservatives, they're our allies. And so she has a very, very different perspective on that that I think it's worth digging into. Um, yes, and there's a lot more to say about um, candidates, about what Ayn Rand had to say about candidates of her time. But in the interest of, of time and in answering as many questions as possible, let's, let's move on to, to the next one asked by Dave. Uh, the essence of the question is, what does Rand mean by a mystic? And he elaborates and says, is the term mystic restricted to witch doctors and intellectuals? Is it valid to describe an Attila as a mystic, i.e. a force-wielding consumer of ideas and a champion of whatever he learns from witch doctors, but not a committed teacher or intellectual advocate of ideas himself? This question is coming out of, we recently did a seminar on Ayn Rand's essay for the new intellectual, which is in the book for the new intellectual. It's the lead essay of that. And she there talks about witch doctors and intellectuals, the man of faith, the man of force. Um, and the, and in, as well in Atlas Shrugged, she uses mystics of spirit and mystics of muscle. And when she's talking about it, mystic as a category of person, I think it is restricted to intellectuals. It's the people who are, have these doctrines, accept them and advocate them, preach them, teach them. So that there are doctrines that essentially, again, going back to what we talked about before, say um, you have a non-rational means of knowledge. So what you are classifying as arbitrary, that it is, you're saying, I have no uh, evidence on arguments for asserting the existence of God or for asserting that in communism, the state will weather away and it'll be Shangri-La. You say, I have no evidence and arguments for that. Yeah, but you're asking for rational evidence and rational arguments. And I've got a non-rational way of knowing and dealing with reality. And it's the mystic is the person who says that. And the mystics of spirit are the uh the religionists really who say there's a whole nother dimension that i'm in touch with by some mysterious means either i get revelations or it's in a dream that i'm in touch with the other reality and so on i get visions revelations or the mystics of muscle are the people who explicitly dispense with another whole another reality a supernatural world but in effect advocate still something like that. So it's a secularized version of it and say now, oh no, what it, reality is really about, it's got these hidden historical process, it's got a dialectic that, it, yeah, it's contradictory and so on. And it's, you can't understand it by rational means, but we're able to understand the whole progress of it. And if you had this perspective, you would know by non-rational means, so on. And so it, um, and, there even go more explicit to instead of just denying that reason gets you knowledge they say well you don't even really have reason um that it, it's all economic forces material things that but they're both the essence is they both are advocates of 
by non-rational means of understanding reality. But you can use the term mystic to describe a person who in effect is functioning as though he has a non-rational means of knowledge. And in that sense, um, you can view the, uh, so it, in the essay, it's Attila and the witch doctor. The witch doctor is the mystic in the sense of advocating ideas and theories and a approach to life that is mystical, that says, forget about reason. Um, you can't function like that, but there's at least some people who have a non-rational means of being in touch with true reality. Attila in effect functions like that. And part of what she's arguing is the Attila, who's the thug, the brute, the man of force, needs a kind of sanction of people telling him, oh no, but what you're doing is, it might seem like, well, you're killing everybody, it's evil, it's bad, it's destruction everywhere. But if you understand true reality, it's you're doing the right thing. Um, and it's you're carrying out God's will or you're, um, you're on a, uh, 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 a crusade that is moral and great and so on, in various kinds of things. But it's, and you can call that the, the brute as he's functioning as though the way to understand reality is not through reason. But that's a, just a different perspective on it. He's not the advocate or the teacher of that. He's one of the people in effect who uh, accepts that kind of view, both in how he functions and more broadly about how the world works. So, so when you think of like Zoe and Atlas Shrugged when she talks about mystics of spirit and mystics of mother, mother, mystics of muscle, that both are ideological. Yeah. Like you could think of some kind of Marxists or something as the mystics of muscle, they're materialists. So there's a sense in which they deny consciousness and they go by something, right? And so there's a sense in which they're mystics in that regard, but both of them are ideologues in effect. Whereas the, when the contrast is the Atelier and the witch doctor, the witch doctor is the ideologue and the Attila is the brute. He's anti-ideology, anti-ideas, anti-conceptual level thinking. Uh, and he just adopts whatever seems to suit his short range purposes, but he, he dismisses ideology in a certain kind of way as contempt for it. Um, yeah. That's helpful. And to get the similarity of, like, to get one aspect of why the, the brute, the Attila would so easily succumb to these ideologues, the myth, but mystics who are preaching some kind of mystical view is the, one of the ways she puts it in the, for the new intellectual essay is what they call, the, the, that is these kind of brutes, what they call this, the hidden power that they don't really understand, but seems to be, they call it fate or luck. It's like, there's something I don't understand. That's what's really in control of things. And if you've met some people who are more or read about some dictators and so on, the way in which they are, uh, think of the world as governed by luck or some of these, they're superstitious and this kind of thing. And one way of thinking what the witch doctor does is he dresses that up into a whole worldview that it's, yeah, it's luck, but it's luck on stilts. It's there's gods to take the, the mystic of spirit. 
in control of the world and we have to sacrifice to them and it's got this whole plan that we're supposed to execute and so and if we don't do it bad things will happen to us and so and it it's the the brute and the um uh here i mean the ruler the attila kind of person is oh okay so that's how it really works uh, i mean i don't know it but you seem to know it and, so, and it is and he bows in a certain sense to that um but that means that he's functioning as though this is how the world works. Okay, so um, we are uh, a little bit past time. Um, thank you for that answer. And um, so let's end there with that question and that answer. So I'd like to tell our audience, uh, thank you for being with us today and uh, how to follow us on social media. Um, if you are watching uh, on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel, uh, click the bell to get notifications uh, when we go live or, or when we post new material. And please also like, share and comment on this video to help attract attention to this channel. Likewise, if you're watching on Facebook, uh, please like and share this video. And if you have questions or comments, please email them to us. Uh, and we always uh, read and often answer. Uh, and sometimes take your suggestions for episode topics. And certainly we take uh, your questions for this type of Q&A episodes. And uh, we have... Um, a special announcement um, about us, an upcoming seminar. So we are having a live OAC seminar on Zoom on Friday, June 25th at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. And uh, you will get to, if you participate, you will get to submit an assignment and answering questions that we post about uh, Ayn Rand's essay, What is Capitalism? And you will be able to get feedback from us and ask, and ask us questions uh, about the essay. Um, and you can sign up at the um, uh, URL that's on the screen. For those listening to the podcast, it's bit.li slash OAC preview. Um, so with that, we end today's podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Aaron and Onkar, for your answers to these questions. And uh, I hope to see you all next week in the next episode of the podcast. Thanks, Agustin. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.